Friends, I want to direct your attention to the passage that was read for us from the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. There are, admittedly, confessedly, many things that we do not enjoy doing. Some of us will tell you that we do not enjoy having to cut the lawn, especially if it is hot and sweaty. We, at times, will confess that we do not like to take out the trash when it's our time or our duty. Doing laundry can be a chore, an unpleasant business. Washing dishes or putting dishes in the dishwasher or taking it out of the dishwasher can be something that people like, do not like. Cleaning the home. There are a whole set of things that we frankly do not like. Very few people get up in the morning salivating, thinking, wow, this is Saturday, I'm going to get a chance to clean the house with joy. So there are many things that we consider unpopular. But one of the most unpopular things today, even within the church, is this business of prayer. We can hear of an announcement of a famous Christian group coming into town, and generally, wherever they're going to play or sing, will be packed out. But let there be an announcement that we are going to gather to meet with God, to speak with him and to hear from him, and very few will show up. We are much more ready to meet with an entertainer a celebrity, even a religious celebrity, than we are to meet with God himself. But Paul was one, though he may have had many things that he did not like doing, one thing is for sure that he delighted in meeting with God in prayer. And this is something that permeates the New Testament and Paul in writing. So often you see where he gives a report of his prayer for believers. It was something in which Paul was avidly engaged and something in which he was engaged with delight that is coming to God and praying. In Colossians chapter 1, 1 to 14, we have a prayer of the Apostle Paul, a prayer that is divided into two sections. After the introductory Words from the Apostle Paul in which he identifies himself and identifies them as people who are saints, but people who are in Christ. He tells them, he gives them a report of a prayer that he has been praying for them. He had never met the Colossians, he had not gone to this church, but he says, I've been praying for you. And this, so it's a, it's a prayer report in verses 3 to 7. He tells them that he has been praying and his prayer consists of thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God. For the evidence of true Christian life. Because they exemplified Christian graces. The chief of which are love, faith, and hope. But in verse 8 to 14, he introduces them to a second aspect of his prayer. Now not thanksgiving, but intercession. So he writes to them, for this reason. Well, what reason? 
Well, he had heard of the grace of God working in them. He had heard of the gospel producing fruit in them. He had learned this from Epaphras, his dear fellow servant and their minister in Christ. He had declared to them of the love that they had in the spirit. In other words, that they were Christians, that they were making progress. He says, for this reason, having heard then of your faith and your love and your hope, and heard of the fruit producing you by the Spirit. For this reason, since we, the day we heard of it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We need to note three things about the prayer of the Apostle Paul, his intercession. First of all, he tells of the content of his prayer. That they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Secondly, he tells us of the purpose for which they should be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And third, he tells us the means of walking worthily of the Lord. And so I want us to look then first at the content of this prayer. The content of this prayer is that believers may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And to ask, that's, you see, the, that, that makes clear his interceding. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The Apostle Paul prays, and he tells us what he prays for. He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Here, the verb to be filled is in the passive. And we call this a divine passive. He's actually praying that God may fill them with the knowledge of his will. That they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Notice, he doesn't pray that they might simply know the will of God. But he prays that they may be filled with it. That there may be nothing lacking in their understanding, in their knowledge of the will of God. That they may be filled with the will of God. That in every area where scripture regulates life, that they might know what God's will is. He prays not only that they may have a knowledge of God, but a knowledge of God's will. And when he speaks of a knowledge of God's will in this context, what does he mean? Very often when, when we pray to know God's will, we are praying for specific things like, whom shall I marry? What is God's will in terms of my career? What is God's will in terms of this decision? Shall I move from this city and live out of the city? We're asking God for specific details or specific answers regarding to particular details of our lives. But the will of God that Paul wants these believers to know and to know in fullness does not relate to these matters, but primarily to the moral and spiritual will of God. Generally speaking, the issues as to whom shall we marry, where shall we work, belong to the secret will of God, the things that God has not revealed, but expect us to act by faith and with wisdom given by the scriptures. But the moral will of God is that which God has revealed in terms of his word, so that we might live 
for him. And Paul, therefore, is praying that these believers here in Colossae might know the will of God, the moral and spiritual will of God in all of his fullness. You see this, that this, this moral will is, be, is what he's referring to. In Colossians 4.12, he says, Regarding Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He's saying that Epaphras is praying for them, that they may stand perfect and complete in all God's will, that they might live completely in the will of God. In Romans 12 verse 2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. It refers to the moral and spiritual demands of God. Paul wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The knowledge of God's will, we must understand, is for our holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will. What is God's will? That we should not only be holy, but that we should be spirit-filled people. See then that you walk, as, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the times because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of God is. In Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, understand what the will of God is. Well, we should not live as unwise people, but we should live as wise. And then in verse 18, he says, do not be drunken with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, to know the will of God in all of his fullness involves holiness, involves living a spiritual life. But the will of God that they are to know in all its fullness involves gratitude to God. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 and 19, Paul says, In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Even enduring of suffering for the sake of the Lord is seen as God's will. So in 1 Peter 2, 5, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here he prays. And he's praying, he's saying, if I may paraphrase, Lord, I, I want you to grant to these believers in Colossae a full understanding of your moral will for their lives. Because it is the only means by which they can live differently by knowing what God demands. It is not possible to live wholly unto the Lord until we have come to know what God wants us to do. Now the, the apostle makes it clear that, that knowledge of the will of God involves wisdom and insight. Notice if you go back to the passage in Colossians 1 and verse 9. He says... For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And by the way, when he says we do not cease, it does not mean that he prays for them continuously. 
but continually. There is a difference between continuous and continual. Continuous means never ceasing, never stopping. Well, nobody can pray continuously because we have to sleep, we have to do other things. But continually means to go on and on habitually. And that's what he means. He's praying for them habitually. That they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. will. And he says, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And what he's saying then is that he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But in a particular realm. In the realm of wisdom and spiritual understanding. Or moral insight or discernment. He wants them to have a full understanding of the will of God. That they might be discerning and that they might be wise. And you see, the, the, the Old Testament describes Hokmah, wisdom, as the skill of right living. In other words, he wants them to know God's will so that they may be wise, that they may be discerning, that they may make right choices. That in every situation in which they find themselves, they might side with God's moral demands, with the moral will of God. Of course, wisdom, Proverbs tells us, is rooted in the fear of God. You see the content of his prayer, that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But the text also shows us the purpose of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Verse 10, that, or this inner clause, in order that. Now he tells us the purpose. Why does he want them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? In order that, for this reason, for this purpose, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. See, for the Apostle Paul, to know God's will in all wisdom and in all spiritual understanding is not that these people should become theological giants and scholars who could flip to anywhere in the Bible. And by the way, knowing the Bible uh, back and front is a, is a good thing. But he's not praying that they might know, have a knowledge of God's will, so that they might be theologians. But he has a practical purpose, a practical goal in their knowledge of the will of God. That is, in other words, that they might live righteously. He says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. That's the reason that they should know God's moral will. So that they might walk worthy of the Lord. And this notion of walking is a Hebrewism. It comes from the Old Testament background where people are said to walk with God. And this life, the, 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 the life, the halak, or this matter of walking with God, refers to the life one, one lives. So to walk with God is to live before God. And he says, they should be filled with the knowledge of God's will, so that they might walk worthy of God. To walk worthy of God means that they might live in a manner that is fitting of their calling as saints. They are to live in accordance with their status as those who belong to God. 
And we see, in particularly in the Pauline epistles, where he talks of what walking worthy. And he says that believers are to walk worthy of the calling. We have been called by God. And as those who have been called by God, we must walk in a manner that is fitting of that calling. We have received a high, a holy, an upward call of God. And this call which has come to us in grace means that we who are people who have been graced should walk in a particular and distinctive manner as those who have heard the heavenly call. Walk worthy of your calling with which you have been called, Ephesians 4.1. You're to walk worthy, he says, of God who called you into his kingdom and glory. You're to walk worthy of those who are citizens of heaven. How do you think? How do you think people who are citizens of heaven should live? Well, we should live heavenly. We should live on earth in the same way we would intend to live before God in heaven. We're walking worthy of the Lord. He says we're to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it means that we're to live then consistently with our status as God's children. It is not then a call to perfection, but a call to live in a manner that is fitting of God. No one can truly live perfectly, but our lives should somehow represent the God who has called us. We should not by our lives put God to shame. But to walk worthy. But for us to walk worthy of God, we must first of all be filled with the knowledge of his will. Because it's only by knowing God's will that we are going to be able to walk pleasing to him. And the second purpose and related purpose of walking worthy of the Lord is not simply that we might, being filled with it, it's not only that we might walk worthy of the Lord, but he says, fully pleasing him. I take this then as an elaboration of what it means to walk worthy of God. That ultimately we are called to walk worthy of God and to fully please him. We need to know God's will. We need the fullness of God's will in order that we might please him. You see, those who walk worthy of God and those who please him are one and the same. These are not two different things. In other words, if a man walks in a manner that is fitting of God, he will please God. And pleasing God is indeed the entire obligation of the believer. In other words, pleasing God can summarize the, the entirety of our responsibility to God. But you and I are not called in this world, to please ourselves. The Christian is one who has been liberated from the tyranny of self, liberated from the, the, the call or the, 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 the imprisonment of seeking to serve, to, to serve self, to serve God. Look at what Scripture says about pleasing God. Finally then, my brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. It's interesting that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul talks about walking and pleasing God together. Walking worthily and pleasing God are one and the same thing. But interestingly, he summarizes his instruction to them. 
He says, finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. What Paul is saying is all of the instructions that we have given you in regards to your responsibility to God is that you might walk and please him. You and I need to know if we're going to live this Christian life that it is not about us. It is not about us. When we have a decision to make, shall I go left, shall I go right? The question we ask is not which is best for me, but which glorifies God more. It's not about you. It's not about me. It is about him. In all situation then, our goal and intent must be to please God. And pleasing God is the same as glorifying God. The writer Paul in Romans 8 verse 8 tells us that we cannot please God by living according to our sinful desires. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If we elevate money and our sinful desires, the things of this life above him, we cannot please him. He also reveals that pleasing God is is the singular focus of the unmarried believer. I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7, 32. In every way then, the emphasis of the passage is that we might come to know the the knowledge of God's will in order to walk worthy of him and ultimately to please him. That's our goal, to walk in a manner that is consistent with our calling, consistent with our status as saints in Christ, and to know his will that we might please him. But the means of walking worthily of the Lord and pleasing him we find in verse 10b to 14. How do we walk worthily of the Lord? How do we please him? That's a good question. And Paul answers with four participles. Four ing verbs. Verbs that qualify, modify the main verb walk. So he says, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. We've seen the purpose of being filled with the knowledge of God, that we may walk worthily and please him. Now we see the means of walking worthily and pleasing God. The writer, the Apostle Paul, will have us recognize that not only are we called to please him, but there are particular ways in which we may please the Lord. These four means of pleasing God are not then to be seen as the only way believers may please the Lord or walk worthy of God. Rather, they are representative. But he lists these four ways. The first means by which they should walk worthy of God 
and please him is by bearing fruit. And he says that, by bearing fruit in every good work. Notice in verse 6, the writer tells them, he says, that the gospel has come to you as also in all the world and is bringing forth or bearing forth fruit, is bearing fruit. And is among you since the day you heard it. What the Apostle Paul would make us know that if the gospel of Jesus Christ is bearing fruit in our lives, that the purposes of God are being fulfilled in us, that we are being transformed by the gospel, if the gospel is producing result and fruit in us, our lives are also correspondingly to be fruitful. What, what I'm trying to say is that if God is working in you, there must be evidence of that in you producing fruit. So he says one of the means by which we walk worthily of the Lord is by bearing fruit. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship. We are God's masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know, the book of Proverbs is a serious book, a very serious book, but sometimes it is hilarious. It talks about the lazy man as a, a man who moves in his bed, turns over his bed like a door moving on its hinges. Put me in closing. Or the lazy man who doesn't want to go to work and find excuses. There's a, there's a lion in the street. Nobody else sees it, but he sees a lion in the street, so he can't go to work. When you become a Christian, you can't be a lazy person. Because Paul says that we are God's workmanship. God has done a mighty work in us through Jesus Christ. And his intent is that we might be engaged in good works. Good works which God himself has prepared in eternity for us to do. So God has a work for us to do. All of us. It is a calling to be involved in good works. In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do Good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Good works in serving the Lord are not then issues whether we may choose, whether we think we are dispensable or not, but rather are part and parcel of our calling by God. I quoted this text this morning, but let me do so again in Titus 2, 13 and 14. He says that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, and here's the purpose, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So that when Christ died for us, he died to liberate us, to deliver us from every sinful deed to 
purify us as his own special people, but also that we may be engaged, that we may be zealous for every good works. And every good work. And Titus 3, he says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Paul tells them, I have been praying for you. I've been asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will in wisdom and in all spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord, that you may fully please him. And here's how you do it, by bearing fruit. It's continuous in the sense that it is not haphazard, but a life continually lived in producing fruit. And producing fruit involves matters like bearing witness for the gospel, telling sinners about the saving work of Christ, doing acts of love for one another. So in witness and in loving and caring and serving each other, we are doing good works. How do we walk pleasing? How do we walk worthy of God? We are engaged, we are busy, we are involved in every task. And it needs to be known that in every church, there is a job to be done. There should be no idle person in the family of God. Our lives are to be bearing fruit. We are to be seeking new opportunities by which we can serve the Lord. Because we have been liberated, we have been delivered from our sins that we might be zealous for good works. But the second means by which they are to walk worthy of God is by growing in the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God then is the realm in which they are to grow. They are to know more about God, not just about God's will, but about God's character, and particularly about what he has done in Jesus Christ. They are to know him. I want you to take a look at what he says again. He says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. But I want to suggest to you that this, this increasing in the knowledge of God does not mean merely knowing more about God, but knowing God. There is a world of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about God is simply knowing facts about God. That's never saved anybody, that's never helped anybody, but merely having facts. But it is knowing God in an intimate and personal way. It is knowing God in a, a way of intimacy and communion. When Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He's talking about a true spiritual bonding with God. That comes in a life lived before God and for God. He says the way we walk worthy is growing, growing in the knowledge of God. And the longer you live as a Christian, the more you should know God. The more you should experience his working in your life, you understand him in his word and you see him in your own experience, you must grow in knowing him. Knowing what displeases him, knowing what pleases him. But the third way, in which they walk worthy of the Lord. He says, being strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So what he's saying is inwardly, 
they, they're pleasing God and they're walking worthy if they are being strengthened. If they're receiving the empowerment and the strength that comes from the Spirit. That they might be long-suffering and patient. You see, the Christian life is indeed a marathon. It's not a sprint. It involves the entirety of our lives. And during the Christian life, the length of our Christian life, we're going to be tested. We have the world on one side and we have the devil on the other side. And then we have an internal devil that is the old nature. And for us to resist the devil and to resist the world and to resist the flesh, we need divine enablement. We need strength from God. So he says, the way you please him is by receiving from him the power that you may be able to endure, that you may remain under pressure with joy. You know, I, I, I think this is tremendously marvelous when he says being strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. He, he wants them to, to be strengthened with God's almighty power, that they might resist everything that is thrown at them by the devil. He wants them to endure, and he wants them to endure with joy. Not with grim hanging on. It's not the intent of God that we should go to heaven grimly hanging on. You know, I can't do better. You know, I started this race and I've come this far. I can't go back. So let me just keep hanging on. I don't quite like what I'm into. I don't like the suffering of the Christian life. But let me just hold on. Let me just get ahead. No, he wants us to endure with joy. But only being strengthened in the inward man by the Spirit will we be able to persevere and persevere with joy. And the fourth way they please God, he says, Giving thanks. Walking worthy of God means giving thanks to the Father. There are three phrases here that explain giving thanks. First, giving thanks to the Father. The one who loved them. The one who saved them by grace. And secondly, the ground of their thanksgiving. It is because God has fitted them for an eternal inheritance. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The ground of their thanksgiving is God has qualified them. It doesn't mean qualified, doesn't mean, mean, mean making them deserving. But rather he has authorized them to be partakers of the inheritance. It's talking about heaven. The reason they should give thanks is because God has enabled them, empowered them, authorized them. To be partakers of heaven. And he calls his inheritance. Thirdly. In the light. The inheritance that God has enabled us. To become partakers of. Is in the light. It is separate from. The kingdom of darkness. It is indeed in the kingdom of light. Of which he goes on to speak. And he says. He has delivered us. This God has delivered us. From the power of darkness, from the reign of darkness, our inheritance is in light because God has delivered us from Satan's dark kingdom and transferred us 
into the kingdom of the son of his love. This kingdom is the kingdom of light. It's ruled by the truth and by the grace of God. So it's a kingdom of light. And he says of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, deliverance through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. One of the difficulties of the Christian life is our lack of prayer. We simply do not pray. And if we pray, we do not pray as much as we ought. The Apostle Paul gives us a few guidances here for prayer. First, he reveals that we must pray. That God's people must be a praying people. And Paul was a man who was always on his knees. When he was asked Martin Luther, the great reformer, where did he find time to pray? He says, I have much to do, therefore I have much to pray for. Do you know, do you know we, we, we say, well, you know, I am so busy. I have a thousand things to do. Well, the more you have to do, the more you must pray. Because definitely you need more help when you have more things to do. Paul was a man of prayer. And we see from this intercession that we must pray to God. We must address our prayer to the sovereign God. But my friends, it is not merely important to pray to God who upholds the world. God who is king and transcendent and sovereign. But we must pray to our heavenly father. We must come to this father knowing that he cares. That he will work for our good. That he has us on his heart. That he is our father and we are his children. What did Jesus say to the disciples? When you pray you say what? Our father. Who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Because only when you call upon God as father. Will you be guaranteed of his goodness? If you do not come to God knowing he is your father, you will not trust him to do you good. But when you know that God is a good and gracious and compassionate and kind father, you may come to him with your needs. We must pray. The object, the proper object of our prayer is God. But he also, Paul, not only shows us the object of our prayer, he shows us the subject of our prayer. We're often concerned, what shall we pray for? And very often, you know, when we pray, our prayers are like shopping lists. You know, Lord, I need a house. I need a new wardrobe. And by the way, I can't take the train anymore. I need a car. And when you come down, it's you know, 20 or 30 different things on our list that God must fulfill. Shopping list. You realize that Paul's shopping list is different. Because Paul was not praying for material things. Not that they're not, these are not important to Paul, but they're not the most important. What does he pray for? He prays for the spiritual well-being of the people of God. And when we pray, yes, by all means, we're going to bring our needs, our material needs. But we must not forget our spiritual needs. These far outweigh our material needs. 
We must pray that God would fulfill and fill our spiritual needs and the spiritual needs of the people of God. He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Sometime ago I was reading about this pastor and he talks about how he prays for his family. And he says when he prays for his wife and when he prays for his children, he comes back to this passage and he prays something like this. Lord, I pray that my wife, that my son will be filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that he may walk worthy of you, that he may fully please you, and that he might bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of yourself and be strengthened with your might that he may give thanks. What do we pray for? Are we concerned about our soul? Are we concerned about our spiritual state? Are we concerned about the state of the church? Then we must pray something like this. Lord, I pray that you may fill your people with the knowledge of your will. That they may walk worthy of you, fully pleasing. That they may bear fruit. That they may grow in knowing you. That they may be strengthened in the inward man. That they may give thanks. We must have spiritual priorities and we must labor in prayer. Listen to me. Listen carefully. We must labor in prayer more for our spiritual needs than for our physical needs because they are greater. Why must we pray? Why must we pray? A doctor once confessed that he found it very difficult to pray. He said, well, there's nothing that I need that I don't have. And when it was suggested to him that he should be thanking God, he said, but I spent years and years studying medicine. And I've gotten where I've gotten because of my hard work. I find it very hard thanking God. And so when he was asked the question, and who has given you this life? This life that you have used to study medicine and to succeed. Who wakes you up in the morning? Who protects you from harm and danger? Who saves you and delivers you from diseases and from death? To whom do you owe your life? It finally dawned on him that he needed God, not just every hour, but every second. We cannot live without him. Why do we pray? We pray because we are dependent upon God for every breath we take. We pray because we are not autonomous, because we need him. And only when the heart comes to recognize that we need God can we cast ourselves upon him. The reason that we are not praying is because we do not know our need of God. The reason that we do not hear from him is because we do not ask. We are told to ask and we shall receive, seek and knock. We must pray. Because prayer is the means by which God has promised to give us what we need. We must pray because this is the activity of the godly man or godly woman. 
It was the Lord Jesus Christ who habitually went off by himself early in the morning to pray. And if our Lord Jesus Christ could not live without prayer, I don't know how we think that we can. He was always praying. What was he doing before he went to the cross? Praying. What was he doing on the cross? Praying. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And to be like Jesus, we must be people of prayer. I understand that sometimes there are occasions why we may not be able to pray as God's people. But it must be the habit. We are habitually joining with God's people to pray. We must pray because our Lord Jesus Christ prayed and left an example that we must seek God's face. But we must pray because prayer is preeminently an act of worship to God. It is in prayer that we tell him that we need him. It is in prayer we tell him we love him. It is in prayer that we praise him, not solely, but importantly. It is in prayer, you see, we express thanksgiving and devotion to God. We we pray as an act of worship because God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We pray because in, in Christ Jesus we have been redeemed and we have been forgiven. We pray because we have known a liberation that comes from God. And we come to him and we say, Lord, we thank you. Lord, I, I could not have released myself from the bondage of Satan and sin, but you have done that. I give you praise. You see, we, we pray because we love him and because it is the reflexive action of the heart that loves God for his grace. Pray that God will make you a man or a woman of prayer. Pray to God. And when you have prayed, pray a little bit more. Pray because you love him. Pray because you have been saved by grace. Pray because you simply delight in communion with God. You don't have to have some profound reason to pray. You should just simply pray for the pleasure of talking with God. You should simply pray for having an audience with God. I, I don't know about you, but for most of us, it would be very hard to get an audience with the prime minister. You'd have to jump through a lot of hoops. You'd have to be proving to the people who surround him that you're worthy of coming into his presence and taking one minute of his time. I mean, if the prime minister ever says, I want to give you one minute to tell me about your issues, you would consider yourself highly privileged. And your heavenly father, the creator of heaven and earth, says, come to me, and by the way, you have all the time in the world. May God help us to love the place of prayer, to pray for ourselves and to pray for the people of God and to pray particularly for our spiritual need that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will 
so that we may walk worthy of him, fully pleasing him, by bearing fruit, by growing in his knowledge, by being strengthened in the inner man, and by giving thanks always to him for his salvation, for Jesus' sake.